from the Heritage Foundation. I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. Last year, heritage experts John Malcolm and Amy Swearer were featured on the cover of Time magazine, along with 243 other Americans. The cover was in black and white, and it's an image of all 245 individuals, each one, or sometimes a group, with a different view on gun ownership in America. For example, there were ER surgeons, NRA members, politicians, mothers, domestic violence survivors, psychologists, and more. The gun issue is the single most important issue facing America. Firearms for me is all about freedom. I see gun violence every day. The gun issue is a woman's issue. It is the great equalizer. The voice of the middle has been drowned out. We just need to work with each other. There's a digital interactive version of this Time Magazine feature. You just heard the intro. It was a good project and one that our experts were proud to be a part of. But when I talked with Amy after the recent shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, she told me that the media landscape felt a bit like what a real-life version of that cover would be like if everyone was shouting at each other instead of discussing. And shouting so loud that no one could understand each other or each individual message. But one message has been made clear. As Congress heads back to Capitol Hill next week, it's certain that gun legislation will be one of the items that lawmakers will be under pressure to tackle. Amy and I have sat down a lot together for this podcast to discuss where solutions can be found. We've talked about the role of mental health, background checks, and how often guns actually save lives. Today, we're going to talk about red flag laws. What are they? Do they work? And what are some concerns that Americans already have about them? Amy Swearer is a senior legal policy analyst in Heritage's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies and recently taped an episode that will air soon on this very issue with Dr. Oz. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me back. So what exactly are red flag laws? So there, there's no one specific red flag law. What red flag laws do is they they hit at a broader concept of uh, essentially opening up the process for identifying and disarming uh, specific dangerous individuals. Uh, so essentially, right now we we know that a lot of uh, individuals who go on to commit gun violence, whether it's mass public shootings or, or suicides, they obtain their firearms legally because they don't have a disqualifying criminal or mental health history. Uh, unfortunately, with regard to mass public shooters in particular, they also had extremely long histories uh, of dangerous behaviors, of of actions that everyone around them knew 
made them a danger to themselves or others. Um, for example, like what we saw in, in Parkland, where you had a kid who's having a law enforcement called to his home, something like over 30 times, specifically in regard to to him threatening people and, and taking violent actions. You know, they were checking his backpack for weapons at school every day. Um, but he was still able to purchase guns legally because no official action was ever taken that you know, rose to the level of disqualifying him from passing a federal or state background check. And so red flag laws are aimed at this concept of how do we identify those individuals, even if they're not you know, specifically mentally ill to a point of needing to be civilly committed, even if they hadn't, haven't already committed a crime, you know, how do we target them and disarm them? And generally, then what these laws do is they allow uh, private individuals to either petition law enforcement or to petition courts directly and to say, hey, look, this person that, that I know that's close to me is showing very serious signs of being dangerous. And I want you to hold a hearing as to whether or not they need to be disarmed and have their rights temporarily revoked until we can figure out that they're not going to be a danger anymore. And, and so that, is that what this looks like? You... You make a report that you're concerned about somebody and that you'd like to have a hearing or you'd like someone, I mean, what happens? Does someone go to your home and say, hey, you've been marked with a red flag. What right. happens next? Right. So this, again, it depends on the specific. It's state the by state. state. Right. So okay. I, I, the, no single state has you know, the same red flag law as another state. Um, but the process is, is generally similar. So either um, you file a petition with law enforcement for law enforcement to investigate, um, or you're actually filing a petition with the court itself, uh, detailing, you know, these are some of the things that I'm seeing. This is why I think this person is dangerous. Hold a hearing. Um, so it, there tend to be two different, I guess, essentially levels of hearings. There are emergency petitions, which uh, are where people are saying, no, this person is an imminent threat to public safety. Something needs to be done right now, um, in, in which case that hearing uh, can a lot of times be done right away, um, oftentimes without that individual necessarily knowing. Um, and there are a lot of due process questions with that. Um, but those are for they're called ex parte orders and they're you know, for imminent threats. Um, but then generally speaking, when it, it's not necessarily the case that someone is an imminent threat, those petitions allow a court uh, to say, yeah, there's enough reasonable evidence here to say, we're going to hold a hearing. We're going to give this individual who's alleged to be a danger, uh, we're going to give them notice. And you, know, uh, depending on the state, it's somewhere like 10 to 14, sometimes up to 21 days. We're going to hold a hearing in that time, um, you know, have this this fully fleshed out uh, hearing where both parties can, can bring evidence uh, and rebut other claims and testify. Uh, to determine whether or not, by clear and convincing evidence, this person is dangerous. Um, and then after that, if it is determined the person is a danger to themselves or others because they have firearms, um, then there is a process for both putting that person um, on some sort of official record so that when they go for background checks, that, that they are excluded from lawful firearm purchase. Um, but then that also whatever firearms they do have are, are being seized and, and kept in, you know, whether it's law enforcement custody or the custody of someone else um, for the duration of that order. And just going back a little bit for some of uh, our listeners, including myself, who aren't great legal experts, when you say due process, you're, you're meaning we can't say, hey, you're, you present this risk 
and we're just going to hold you in this pattern for months and months and months. Right. So so due process is this concept of, of fairness, essentially, um, that if we are going to restrict your rights, and this is especially important when we're talking about like enumerated fundamental constitutional rights, like the right to keep and bear arms, that, that before we restrict that, we are going to have a fair and full process for that, and that we're going to have some sort of high standard for determining that this needs to be done, that it's not just, oh, well, well someone said that you're dangerous, and so we believe them, uh, give us your guns, um, but that it's it's more robust than that. So these red flag laws have been tried out, and like for in Colorado, for example, what are we finding? Are they helping? Red flag laws on the whole are, are actually a fairly new concept. So you had, you had Connecticut, who implemented uh, a version of it in 1999, but uh, it, it's only been recently, I think, on the heels of Parkland that you've seen 12, 13, 14 other states step in. It was prior to Parkland. It was only really five states. So there's not a whole lot of, of studying or, or data on it, um, especially in the vast majority of states because it's new. But what we do find uh, is that uh, you know, contrary to a, a lot of fears that these laws are going to be overutilized um, to target people who aren't really dangerous and are going to be used as sort of this broad confiscation measure. Uh, what we actually find is that they are very limited uh, and specifically limited to individuals who are otherwise flying under the radar of mental health systems. Um, so people who, again, didn't have these disqualifying histories, um, weren't necessarily seeing they're not a felon. Right. They're, they're not felons. They're, they're not otherwise precluded. Um, but But someone is noticing something and saying, He's dangerous. Um, and they're doing it on a limited scale, right? So again, it's not this broad, you know, everyone's looking around going, everyone next to me is is dangerous and, and needs to be disarmed. But that um, both individuals who are petitioning and the courts themselves are doing a good job of of limiting that to people who are actually at a heightened risk of, of dangerousness. And we're also seeing that that courts aren't just rubber stamping petitions, because that's the other big fear is that you will have people file these petitions right. and a court will just sort of uh, universally, unanimously, well, you, you said he's dangerous, I believe you. Um, but that we actually find in some of the states where this has been studied, um, about a third of the time, um, either initially or upon further review, courts are are rejecting these petitions and saying, now nah, that this person either doesn't need to have their firearm rights revoked or if it was you know, an, an initially it's suspected, right, if it was initially suspected um, and, and they had it temporarily revoked that the court later said, no, OK, th- th- you don't actually reach this bar. You you have to return this person's firearms. OK, since we're talking about really important and big issues facing our country right now, I want to take a second to tell our listeners about a new podcast series that Heritage is launching. It's called America's Biggest Issues, and it's a series of 10 short podcasts that break down issues like immigration, healthcare, marriage, welfare, and more. And I'm going to be honest, what I really love about this series is the length. It's super smart and breaks down the problem and the solution, but it's also super short and bingeable. The full series launches on September 9th, but you can find the podcast and the first episode right now by searching for America's Biggest Issues anywhere you get your podcasts. There's a video version of this series on YouTube as well. All right, now back to my conversation with Amy. So could these have helped with mass shootings? Do we know of any specific instances where we could say, hey, if this was in place here, this would not have happened? 
Yeah, and so that's that's the question, right? Is could this actually have have prevented anything? And I I think the the answer there is absolutely yes. Um, so it's it's hard to always go back in time and say you know, somebody would have filed a red flag petition. Um, but what we do know again is that the vast majority of these mass public shooters had these signs of dangerousness. I think when you look at instances like Parkland, um, when you look at the the Tucson shooting where uh, Gabby Giffords was was shot. Um, when you look at uh, even instances like the Aurora shooter, the Aurora, Colorado, the, the movie theater shooter, where people around these individuals were seeing clear signs of dangerousness, that they, they were feeling uh, themselves like they were in danger around these people. Um, but anytime they went to e- either the university um, or the, the school or law enforcement, nothing was done. And it would have opened up a door for these individuals to go to a court themselves and say, please do something. Um, you know, you look at the case of the the Tucson shooter and his parents were so concerned about him that they were trying to disable his car and hide his firearms because he, he they couldn't otherwise get him to go to mental health treatment. Um, Which know. is usually the case with right. someone with, with mental health issues. Right. And so, you know, because he hadn't been civilly committed for whatever reason, he hadn't reached that threshold. His parents, you know, couldn't get him voluntarily to go. They had really not a whole lot of other legal options. And so this opens up those doors for, again, th- those individuals who are close to dangerous people to do something or at least to bring that information, um, just another route of bringing that information to an official to say, please help us. So here's a really important question that I'd like to wrap things up with, um, because really in order for us to make progress on important issues like these, um, it, we really have to come together. So what's the liberal viewpoint on red flag laws? So this is where, again, red flag laws are just so interesting across the political spectrum because there's not like a, a left-right divide here. There's actually like a left-left and a right-right divide. And so kind of what I've seen from this is that you have some on the left who are very, very skeptical of red flag laws because they don't think they go far enough. Uh, you know, it, it's not focusing specifically on firearm access broadly. They'd much rather see, you know, your, your common proposals like like uh, confiscation of so-called assault weapons, universal background checks and that sort of thing. And so they just don't think it goes far enough. Where on the right, you have individuals who, you know, I think it's a legitimate underlying fear, but they look at a lot of the rhetoric from the, the, the gun control advocates and they're almost hesitant to give an inch to anybody um, because th- their fear is that anytime you have a policy that allows a court to take away someone's firearms, that it's going to be abused by gun control advocates as this sort of uh, inroads to mass confiscation, or that it's going to be abused um, in this culture we have right now where it's, you know, words are violence. Um, you know, you wore a MAGA hat, so you are inherently dangerous and you need to be disarmed. You then have on on both sides this sort of middle ground, um, whether it's it's the left or the who who might see this as sort of a, you know, like a good beginning stage, even though they want more. Or you have people on the right who would look at this and say, well, this addresses a real problem, you know, r- regardless of. Like, I don't think anyone is under the illusion that if you know we we give the the gun control left red flag laws, they're they're going to all of a sudden not want. Uh, everything universal else. background checks yeah. and and the whole slew of, of every other gun control policy. Um, but that being said, that there is a legitimate 
underlying um, you know, reason for these laws, that, that they're actually touching on a, a very real problem with regard to gun violence. Um, and so, again, it's just this interesting space where you see some people on the left and right willing to work together on them, but then also you know, people on the left and right just vehemently opposed to them for very different reasons. Um, and I, I think a lot of it just has to do with a misunderstanding of red flag laws, a misunderstanding of how they can be narrowly tailored um, and how those protections can be put in place. Um, but then also, you know, the, the role that these, uh, you know, I guess un, unconfronted symptoms of dangerousness play in mass public shootings. So then in, in short, here at the Heritage Foundation, do we feel like this is a good starting point, at least from the conservative perspective? So it can be. And this is, is very, very important when I say it, it can be. Red flag laws as a concept, I think people largely agree, and certainly I think Heritage would agree, that the concept itself of identifying and disarming specifically dangerous individuals is a good concept. The problem is you need to do it in such a way that due process is respected, that the process is fair, that it's not um, being abused, That it, and frankly, that so it's— So it's a matter of good red flag laws exactly. and bad red flag Exactly. Laws. Red, red flag laws can be tailored and written in such a way that they are good, and they can be tailored and written in such a way that they open the door for systematic abuse um, that is— Unacceptable, And so it really comes down to the specific law in front of you and the protections that are in place, because, again, it is a, the concept itself is generally good. Uh, it needs to be tailored to be specifically good. Thank you so much, Amy, for all that you do in this area. We appreciate you sitting down with us again. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's episode. As I mentioned, Amy will be on Dr. Oz to talk about red flag laws. We don't have an air date, but when I have it, I'll update our show notes so you can catch that. I'm also linking Amy's research that inspired this episode and the Time Magazine feature I mentioned in the intro. If you like Heritage Explains, you can pretty much find us and share us anywhere. We're everywhere you get your podcasts, but you can also listen and share from YouTube or Facebook and more. Let me know if you have thoughts on the topic of today's podcast or others at editor at heritage.org. We'll see you next week with another explainer. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher with editing by Thalia Rampersad.